tonight on Arena. Natalie Haynes on why we've got it all wrong about Medusa and Jess Fahey on the international blockbuster exhibitions of 2023. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the programme at RTE Arena. Consider, if you will, for a moment, Caravaggio's Medusa, the face of her decapitated head frozen in abject horror, blood spurting from her neck, her hair, such as it is, a chaotic tangle of snakes, painted with such dramatic realism they seem to slither before our very eyes. The image evokes no sympathy. This is a creature that got what was coming to her at the hands, of course, of the great and clever hero that was Perseus. Medusa was a monster, mortal seductress who deviled the holy temple and those who dared to look at her turned to stone. But what if we look again at the myth of Medusa and consider that maybe, just maybe, her story had been spun beyond recognition uh, into something that conveniently ignores her circumstances and that perhaps says much about how society treats women perceived to have transgressed. In her non-fiction book, Pandora's Jar, the writer and classicist Natalie Haynes sought to re-examine the women of Greek myths and question whether modern male tellers of these tales have suited their own ends at the expense of women like Jocasta, Clytemnestra and now, of course, Medusa. And in her latest novel, Stone Blind, Natalie Haynes brings us her version of Medusa's story from the very beginning as the mortal sister of two Gorgons and as the survivor of rape, a violation compounded by being punished herself for the sins of her attacker. Natalie Haynes will be talking about Medusa and other mythical women at the Classics Now Festival in Dublin on January the 20th and delighted to have her join us on the programme this evening. I remember when I spoke to you last time, Natalie, which was about uh, Pandora's Jar, I started off by saying, um, did, did, and some of the listeners would be going, did he just say Pandora's Jar? And we would often go on to explain why it was Pandora's Jar. I guess there might be some people saying, did he just say actually that Medusa wasn't a bad uh, skin at all? Sorry, you, I, my line is a little glitchy. Can you repeat that last bit? I was just saying, did, did did some listeners maybe saying, did he just say Medusa wasn't a bad old skin at all? She was a fine woman that has been misrepresented. I did just say it because exactly. you say that. I, I mean, it's one of those things where with this book, I felt like, there was a slight risk that people who'd read Pandora's Jar, I was thinking, well, there's a chapter on Medusa there. And so people will feel like they already know this story. But it turned out that there was still a really big audience of people who didn't (laughs) know that she is a beautiful young woman, at least according to, for example, the poet Pindar, who describes her as Yuparu. He says she's got beautiful cheeks. Um, There's a story in uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, I think, that men had flocked across the entire Greek world to compete to be her husband. That happens to one other person that I can think of just off the top of my head, Helen of Sparta. She'll become Helen of Troy, the most beautiful mm. woman the world had ever known. Yeah, and who and you so had you had this, written about her before recently, or before as well. I had. Yeah. And so there's this sense that Medusa is a monster. And I think it's largely caused by the fact that um, there is a, an abiding fear in our culture of the female gaze, um, of what women are looking at and what judgments they're making. And that's why the sense that, you know, she only has to look at you and you'll turn to stone. Okay, well, when I started researching her for... Um, stone blind, I I realized that she doesn't kill anybody in any source I could find um, from the ancient world. Nobody is turned to stone by Medusa. There are people who are turned to stone by Medusa's head after she's been killed 
when her head is used as essentially a weapon of mass destruction ah. by Perseus. At one point, Perseus kills an entire island full of people. So if anything, he has anger management issues, but she yeah. isn't a monster. Yeah. As you said, she was sexually assaulted by Poseidon. And then I'm afraid something which has happened in our culture continuously, as far as I can tell, um, and shows no signs, upsettingly, of changing. What happens is that having once been assaulted by a man, mm. she's then assaulted a second time. She is punished for having been raped rather than the rapist being punished. And cle very cleverly, and I did refer to him as being clever, Perseus then says, oh, sure, I had nothing to do with it. It was this head in my hand. I did nothing. That He's, he's kind of washing his hands of, of any bad act at all. Absolutely. And, you know, it's an incredibly disingenuous position to hold. And the version of Perseus that I wanted to tell is inspired by vase paintings more than there are actually really few literary sources about Medusa that survived to us from the ancient world. That's not a particular surprise. We've lost between 97 mm. and 99 percent of ancient literature. Um, but vase paintings show them in a much more... Um, interesting light i think they're really ambivalent there's a, a crater a wine bowl in the metropolitan museum in new york that shows perseus kind of sneaking up on medusa he's on tiptoe and he is obvi he's obviously got the support of lots of gods he's the son of zeus um and a mortal woman named danae he's wearing uh shoes that belong to hermes winged sandals so he can fly away once he's killed medusa mm. he's got a hat on that's the cap of darkness that belongs to the god Hades that makes him invisible. He's holding a curved sword. It's called a harpe. That belongs to Zeus, his father. It's wrapping around Medusa's neck on this vase painting. And behind him is Athene acting as a sort of guide. He's looking behind her to get advice from her. And the first time I saw this vase, I thought, oh, well, he's looking back because he doesn't want to make eye contact with Medusa. And then I looked again. She's asleep. Her eyes are shut. Mm. So he's not at all worried about eye contact. And then when I looked at this scene, I thought, well... It's really different, actually, from the way that vase painters show, like Heracles, Hercules, to give him his Roman name, where his labours, all it all looks like he's having a whale of a time, killing a hydra or choking a Nemean lion or whatever. And then here's this piece of really ambivalent art. And I think mm. this artist was, you know, at best ambivalent. But you can look at this scene and say, Perseus is incredibly endorsed by the gods because look at how they're all helping him hermes lends the shoes zeus lends the sword hades lends the hat and athene is there to help out but another way of looking at it is just how useless is this young man <laughs> that all these gods have to help him out yeah and hercules never gets help from anybody yeah and, <laughs> so, and, and i suppose if you carry it even into a, a, a modern kind of analogy here we are looking at the child of privilege, the child of great um, wealth or whatever, yes. of, of a deity, of deities in this particular case, uh, can do whatever he likes and will get away with it. Yeah, he's the ultimate Nepo baby, as I believe they call them now. <laughs> so, yes, absolutely. You know, he is the son of Zeus. So what's the worst that's going to happen to him? Mm. You know, the stakes are really low for deities in this worldview. And again, that's not my... Um, Invention that comes from reading the Iliad, reading Homer's Iliad, where the gods are sort of having a separate set of a separate level, I should say, maybe of conflict from the mortal conflict, the Trojan War that makes up the the ground level part of the poem. But the gods are squabbling constantly. And is it about 
something profound and important. No, it's usually about really petty things. <laughs> because, of course, if you live forever, nothing's really at stake yeah. for you. <laughs> and so the way that these deities and their lives interact and intersect, I suppose I should say, with mortals who they can't hope to understand. It's like asking you or me to emote for an ant or something, you know, when our lifespans are so short compared with theirs, yeah. of course it's going to cause impossibility of communication. Medusa was your, if, if I can put it this way, your gateway character into into the classics, specifically from the film Clash of the Titans. What struck of you course, about how she's Clash of the Titans. yeah? How what how what struck you about the way she's portrayed there that kind of set you off on what has become your career in many ways. Yeah, it's well, I, I always know I'm supposed to say, oh, I first encountered the Greek myths in this very cerebral book for children, <laughs> not least because my mum's a retired English teacher. My dad is a history teacher, retired also. And my nan worked in a children's bookshop, <laughs> but I didn't. I was Clash of the Titans, the Ray Harryhausen version. My mum says I wasn't old enough to see it at the pictures because I, I think it came out in 1981. Um, but obviously it, it's been on television roughly every single, you know, mm bank holiday Monday for 400 years. So I've seen it exactly as many times as you have to. And the version of Medusa that you see in that, and Perseus in that, I might add, is Harry Hamlin, of course, who's incredibly attractive. And so it's taken me a really long time for the scales to fall from my eyes on the subject of Perseus, because I was dazzled by the good looks of Harry Hamlin. It says a lot about me as a person. Um, but that version of Medusa is really interesting because she has the snakes for hair and she has the sort of lithifying gaze, the power to turn you to stone. Um, but she's also got a snaky tail, uh, uh, ancient uh, artistic representations of Gorgons don't show them with a snaky tail. They show them with snaky hair, but usually they have wings, which the Harryhausen version doesn't have. Um, I wonder if it's because he'd already done the harpies earlier in the film. And so he was like, oh, wings, we've done those. Um, but she's also armed with a bow and arrows, which is, again, something that isn't associated with Gorgons at all in the ancient world. The bow and arrow is the preserve of the goddess Artemis and also of some Amazon warriors. So it's a he turns her into a much more predatory right. monster and that then makes it okay i guess that perseus is going to decapitate her um mm. with two comrades so she's outnumbered but you don't feel like that watching the film because she doesn't feel like a person or a character you know yeah. it would be like sympathizing with i don't know a, a dragon or a sea monster or something like that and actually there is a sea monster in the clash of the titans movie and it gives perseus in that version a really noble reason for his quest he's got to get the head of a gorgon so he can turn a sea monster to stone and rescue a princess well in our ancient versions of the story rescuing andromeda from the sea monster is a side quest on the way home he just goes yeah. to get the head because he's asked to by a petulant king and funny um, enough you, you, but you I always think it's oh sorry yeah, you mentioned andromeda there and I, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the other mm. night I was speaking with Stephanie McCartner about her uh, recent uh, translation of Ovid's Metamorphoses and yes. in fact she 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 spoke to me about the language in Metamorphoses is is in fact much more direct and less florid, less flowery than many of the later translations where, you know, when somebody like Diana is being described, they talk about the beauty of her bosom as opposed to her torso, uh, which is yes. how Ovid, you know, the, he, he's much more direct in, in the type of language that he uses. So these, when did it, when did it go wrong for, for Medusa? You say these these vases and things like that were where, where you find this other version or this different version of Medusa. When did it all go wrong? When did she become the bad woman yeah, that I think we, she she's often portrayed as? Yeah, she suffers very badly um, under sort of Renaissance art, I'm afraid. And it's often the way with 
female characters that have a, a kind of strength to them um, is that they are later and consistently monstered. Um, and I think, you know, in some ways you get the sort of, there are different ways of going about it. So you get the sort of monstering of Pandora, which we talked about last time, mm. where she gets sort of mapped onto the Eve narrative, which is basically beautiful woman equals evil, <laughs> just as a shorthand. <laughs> and you go, oh, great. Thanks for clearing that up. But then woman who I find physically unattractive, checks notes, also evil. is <laughs> the route that Medusa goes. And it's like, oh, guys, enough already. And so I can see the temptation for artists in creating this extraordinary character where you have these sort of incredible snakes for hair and so on. But it, it, it's, a, it's a pity that we've lost some of the nuance in the ancient representations of her. Because in ancient versions, she goes from one you know, extreme to another. So you could see if you were to go on holiday to Corfu in the Archaeological Museum of Corfu, you could see an incredible, I think she's 6th century BCE Medusa, who's unbelievably great. She's super strong, huge muscles, you know, wings, although the uh, area of the sculpture around her, well, you can only see a few feathers because it's degraded there. It's made of quite a soft type of stone. But she's got these gorgeous chubby cheeks, just like Pindar <laughs> said. She's Yuparu. She's got these beautiful cheeks. And then right the way through to that crater I was mentioning before, it's in the Metropolitan Museum, that version of Medusa doesn't even have snakes for hair. She's just got beautiful dark ringlets. She's just yeah. a beautiful young woman. Yeah. And there's an incredible version of her from, um, I think, the second century BCE, so a Hellenistic version of her. And by that point, she's been so prettified. She's got sort of a beautiful kind of trailing tendrils from an updo hairdo. And it's like, is that a tiny snake amongst them? She looks mm. like she's off to a ball in Jane Austen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I hope that you meet Mr. Bingley and he has £10,000 a year, Medusa. <laughs> So and, and, and you can look at you all night and nothing will happen to him. But uh, Absolutely. You, you, and then you could create some more statues for his enormous hall, which <laughs> I'm sure he'll need. But, but you, then by the time, you know, artists get on board in you know, Italy in particular and, and then, you know, following through from the Renaissance, then yeah. what you start to see is these much more ugly, much more aggressive Versions. paintings of her, or that she's shown in a much more kind of dehumanised light. So it always saddens me that the Metropolitan Museum, a museum which I have visited many times and adored, um, makes such a big deal of its sculpture by Canova from 1801, which is um, called Perseus Triumphant. And it's mm. everything you'd expect from neoclassicism, this sort of whiter than white statue of this beautiful, naked, muscled young man. And it's so, there's no suggestion it might have been painted like actual ancient art. This is very much what classics looked like in 1801. It's paler than me, and I'm partly Belgian. It's like, who knew that was even possible? And he's holding up the head of Medusa, and it all looks very clean and clinical. And, you know, it, it, as I say, it's called Perseus Triumphant. And yet in the same museum, there's this beautiful vase painting of Perseus looking anything but triumphant, of him looking sneaky and cruel, and Medusa looking defenseless and asleep. And it seems a shame to me that that... Um, that those two pieces of art are given different quantities of attention. I would be all over that crater if I were them. There are a million and one things that I could ask you to continue our conversation, but one very uh, brief final question. You fictionalised the story. Obviously, this is a novel and you have a narrator. Yes. Do, do you think of the narrator as a female narrator here? And does that give a new voice or give that voice a chance to rehabilitate? Not that she needs rehabilitation, but to represent uh, Medusa to us. Yes, definitely. Um, all the narrators in my 
book are female. And I say this um, knowing that you know that at least one of those narrators is a a very snooty olive tree. Um, and one of them is a chatterbox crow who's so overexcited it can barely get the words out. But they are all female even so. So yes, there are multiple narrative voices in this book. But I wanted to let female voices be heard because yeah. my feeling generally is that I spend my whole life reading the work of, you know, what's dismissed um, in classics as being dead white men. Well, those dead white men have kept me fascinated and intrigued and delighted for decades now, but I'm still giving women a voice. It's their turn. And long may you do so. And thanks for giving us your voice this evening, Natalie. That's Natalie Haynes. And an evening with Natalie Haynes, surely going to be a lot of fun. It's on at the Abbey Theatre, the Peacock Stage, on Saturday the 28th of January. I believe it's sold out, but for more information, potentially um, there may be returns, I guess. Classics Now Festival, other lots of other events happen as well classicsnow.ie now Sebastian Barry's new novel due out in February is called Old God's Time the story revolves around a recently retired policeman Tom Kettle who has settled into a quiet life in his new home by the sea his life however has slowed down and barely seeing a soul his time is filled with memories of his wife and family that is until two former colleagues turn up at his door with questions about a decades old case one that Tom never quite came to terms with pulling him into the darkest current of his past. The past is somewhere very comfortable, of course, for Sebastian Barry, having excavated his own family history for some of his great characters, Willie Dunn in The Long, Long Way, Roseanne McNulty in The Secret Scripture, and Thomas McNulty in Days Without End among them. Well, I will be talking to Sebastian Barry in a public interview to mark the publication of Old God's Time. That interview takes place on Tuesday, February the 21st at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlera, and to whet your appetite for a night with Mr Barry, here he is talking about why his family history has inspired his writing. Well, I, I think somewhere between alarm at my own childhood, but also that capacity for love that you have as a child for your people, somewhere between those two things, I think this began. Um, in some ways, I think age 10, you can be a better artist, as Elliot said to Pound, Il Milio Fabra, when you're young, because you have nothing to lose and nothing to gain. You're simply trying to keep your feet on the ground uh, and see where you are and find a compass for yourself. And I really, I have spent 44 years doing no more nor less than that. The fact that I still don't quite know where I am uh, is not to be held against me. I mean, one is lost, but one knows one is lost. And that's, that's the very starting point Sebastian Barry there on his inspiration to write and that arena public interview takes place on Tuesday, February the 21st at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary. It will be a live hour-long show. If you'd like to attend in person at the theatre, contact paviliontheatre.ie. One of the great pleasures in life, art, is without doubt best enjoyed in person, an experience we have been starved of during the last couple of years for many reasons, obviously. Now, after venue closures, cancellations and having to resort to online viewings to satisfy our hunger for art, there are many incredible events planned 
for this year all over the world from Dega to Kusama from Hockney to Hip Hop 2023 will see some blockbuster exhibitions truly worth travelling for I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Jess Fahey who will share some of the highlights in the UK Europe and US uh, coming in the next 12 months and I suppose is there a sense in some ways Jess that this is kind of making up for the, the, the last couple of years is, is 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 it really a blockbuster year 2023 yeah it's crazy I mean when I was looking at the amount of exhibitions that were coming up because for me as an art historian you kind of want to make sure you get to see some of the big shows and things when they're coming around but there are hundreds. You can name an artist you like and there's going to be an exhibition of theirs somewhere. So I think because museums were closed for so long, essentially they want to get the people back in. So they yeah. need to come up with these, you know, blockbuster shows. Or, I mean, some of the other ones as well were just really unusual, really special, really specific things that have never happened before. And you get the feeling that maybe curators have had, had time to think yeah. and time to work, you know, behind the scenes on getting these exhibitions ready yeah, funny enough, um, Grace Dias, who was on with this last night, was talking about the fact that the the exhibition and the event that she was involved in out in Rua Red in Tala, in and around the Mary Magdalene s- series of events yes. there, that the fact that COVID happened, it meant that there were all of this, there was all of this gestation time that that hadn't been there previously, which allowed for other things to grow out of it. Mm-hmm. So let us take a look then at some of the things that have mm-hmm. gestated over the <laughs> yes. the COVID period. Forty two exhibitions in total in and around Picasso. I know. So it's 50 years since he died. And I guess the, that's part of the reason, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, so 8th of April, I think, will be the anniversary. So there's kind of a commemoration and it's, interestingly, the French and Spanish government coming together to put on these exhibitions, but they're worldwide. You know, there's some in New York, for example, Hannah Gatsby, who very famously had uh, a Netflix special. She's a comedian mm. from uh, Australia or New Zealand, I think. And she um, talked about how she hates Picasso. And she's one of the curators of an exhibition over in New York which is incredible to consider because it means that although there's a commemoration of him it doesn't have to just yeah, be a celebration all, uh, ha- hagiography yeah. exactly and he you know is majorly problematic for a lot of people particularly feminists so uh, that's bringing one element in and uh, then in other places they're picking up just on because um, he was such a prolific artist uh, picking up on maybe just one type of work so sculpture for example is going to be in Malaga think it travels as well um, and then there's other um, curators who've kind of picked to match him with maybe an artist he was influenced by like El Greco who you know he's very influenced by or another important person in his life so there's one in Paris that's um, his relationship with Gertrude Stein so there's all of these extraordinarily different but interesting ways of interpreting him or ways of taking out moments from his life to yeah. give a broad view of Picasso across the world and, and those um difficult aspects I suppose a lot of them in and around his personal life are they you know can we sell can we separate again a theme that I've often spoken about on the programme most recently to to, to Todd Field and about the film Tar Mm -hmm. can we separate the, the artist from the personality behind it are there exhibitions that kind of address that difficult question yeah so I think the one in New York and Brooklyn's going to do that um, or at least I would hope so based on you know the curators yeah. I don't believe that we should stop talking about people just because they were bad people if we were actually to do that with the artists from in the western art history we'd be left with very few artists most of them did kind of horrible things by our standards today mm. he was particularly bad though I think particularly in relation 
education to women and he was unabashed about it too um, famously saying things like you know after he leaves women he wants them to burn you know and their lives to be over so he can move on and that seemed to happen quite a bit um, you know one Touch of the Perseus then about him yeah, <laughs> that he ends with so, actually yeah absolutely <laughs> and he did sort of treat women you know in that kind of way but um, you know in some cases like I think it was actually Dormar who said after Picasso there's only God it's because she went to a convent you know there was nothing else she could do after that and you know he had this sort of idea that you know they were to be picked up and used as influences and then thrown away but it doesn't mean his art still isn't vastly important within you know the canon uh, 42 exhibitions is there one place where we can kind of have a look at everything that's happening I suppose Picasso lovers or uh, some Picasso organisation will give that to us yes so if you just uh, put in I think the name ultimately is Picasso Celebration 1973 to 2023 yeah. type it into Google and it will bring up a website uh, it isn't that detailed the website though so you do end up using their yeah, so you, list that links to jump you to around. elsewhere yeah, yeah I think it's coming from the, the website of the Picasso Museum in Paris isn't yes. it that, that's, yeah, where that's where that's right. coming yeah. Okay, let us move on then. And again, we're picking up on <laughs> what we've been speaking about with Natalie Haynes. Yawai, uh, how do I say the first name there of Kasama? Uh, Yayo. 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 Kasama. You, me, and the balloons. This yes. is happening in Manchester. Tell us about uh, Kasama, first of all. Yeah, so I think she's just one of the most interesting artists and um, has now been declared as the uh, highest. Um, income for a living artist particularly a female artist in the world and she is still living born in 1929 in Japan Mm. Uh, she had a lot of resistance from her family who didn't want her to be an artist but she suffered from a lot of anxiety and other issues that she herself has said is only solved by creating art Um, but what she creates doesn't seem to reflect that darkness of her side of her personality it's usually the most joyous multicoloured extraordinary you know, blow up um, kind of tentacles and, you know, things that are 10 metres high. And Well, the, the title of the exhibition that's happening in Manchester kind of gives it you, me and the balloons. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And uh, her whole career was all of these terrible difficulties that happened to her. So even when she manages to leave Japan and goes to New York, very quickly, male artists who see her work just steal her ideas. She was one of the first artists to have an insulation space where she used a kind of re- repeating wallpaper pattern that Andy Warhol saw, said to her, that's a good idea, actually said to her that that's a good idea and then used it himself have the it, following please. year. Yeah, and soft sculptures, she was the first one to do it. Reflective rooms, you know, where it's a little sort of room of mirrors that repeats and reflects. Mm. Again, other artists took her ideas. So she ends up committing herself to a mental health uh, facility in Japan and she still lives there, but she still works every single day. Interesting that you mention Andy Warhol there Mm. because the venue in uh, Manchester is called the Factory International. Yeah, different factory. Yeah, Yeah. different type type of factory for sure. What kind of venue? It's not not a traditional uh, venue at all, is it? No, and it's brand new as well, so it's really exciting. So that's definitely going to be one that I'm going to get over to. Um, So it is uh, a brand new uh, building uh, designed by uh, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture Mm. and the architect Ellen Van Loon. Um, And it's meant to be a very flexible 
flexible space so they're going to be able to use it for a, an array of different types of um, cultural events from very small intimate performances of music or dance to then big exhibitions or a variety of different things and they wanted to sort of reinvigorate and re-inspire kind of Manchester culture and it's called the factory after the record label you know of uh, yeah exactly rather than Andy Warhol's factory international.org will give you the details of that June Mm -hmm. through until August I suppose a lot of people from Ireland may well be travelling to England at that time of year so it might fit in with that yeah now somebody's been watching Father Ted (laughs) David Hockney bigger and closer not smaller and further away this is is in London yeah uh, and very soon in fact from February through until the 4th of June February 22nd through and a new new venue as well the Lightroom up at uh, King's Cross Um, so it is I suppose giving him a chance to showcase what he loves to do Mm. which is to use new technology (coughs) to create um, his vision of the world so that other people can enjoy it and be immersed in it. So he talked, he's already talked about it quite a bit and he was saying that um, the idea that um, he could use multiple projectors in these spaces to create a whole world of his artworks and it's going to be accompanied by him giving voiceovers as well as uh, music particularly um, composed for it uh, including um, a very uh, famous thing that he used to do when he lived in California which was to bring people in what he called the Wagner Drive where he'd play <laughs> Wagner in a car and drive them through the hills in uh, California so he's recreating that in these large spaces with projector and sound and a fully immersive experience Yeah and that sounds I mean in, in as much as anything I mean obviously it's, it is about products to a certain mm-hmm. extent but in the case of Hockney in particular there's so many variations if you like in his process are, uh, uh, do the voiceovers and the type of things that we're getting in this exhibition do the address looking at the ways he makes art as much as the art itself yeah absolutely so there's going to be like Polaroid um, collages and he was very well known for using uh, Polaroid and fax machines and all of these mm. kind of things when they were new technology and yeah. now he uses an iPad and he tends to draw a lot and paint sort of on the iPad so he's sort of tracing I suppose his career overall but also his relationship with technology in his career um, Paris now, uh, the Musée d'Orsay, Manet and Dega from the end of March through until the end of July. Obviously, we hear Paris and we think immediately kind of Impressionism, I think, jumps yes. in. When you hear France at all and art, it, Impressionism really does jump to mind. We're not we're not quite in the world of Impressionism, so really, with, yeah. um, with Manet and Dega. So it's an interesting one because um, Manet dipped his toe in to Impressionism, mm. but he was very determined to go through the usual um, avenues of the salon and things like that to make his name. Uh, Dega exhibited with the Impressionists, was one of the main organisers of the exhibitions that started in 1874 and in 1886 that are known as the Impressionist mm. exhibitions. But he saw himself as a realist with a capital or not an Impressionist. And for him... Although his works look like they could have been made in the moment, in the way Monet would say, for example, Degas said his method was, you know, like orchestrating or completing the perfect crime. It looks spontaneous, but actually he has spent a lot of time making it and choosing and like deciding. The, like the guy who spent all night putting the gel in his hair to make it look as if it just yes, fell as out. if That's he just way. woke up. Yeah, <laughs> exactly that. Yeah. Uh, so between the two of them, and this exhibition is going to be interesting, I think, for that reason, is that there are a lot of 
of things they have in common. There was a relationship between them. There was a great story that they first met in the Louvre standing in front of the Velasquez, who they were both very influenced by. But I think the kind of, I suppose the thing that they're um, relying on in this show is that there's enough of a contrast and there's, there's enough of a competition. So you kind of as a, a visitor get to decide or get yeah. to at least join in in that debate between the two because where there is crossover in terms of subject it means they could both be painting scenes of a race course say for example or a cafe scene or something and you get to see both and see how they're in dialogue with each other both complementary yeah. and contrasting. And, and that this one is it's in Paris the Musée d'Orsay but it's also it, is it travelling to the Met then? It is as in, well in, yes in, absolutely in actually quite, quite a few of the uh, exhibitions this year are travelling which yeah. I think makes sense because if it's a very expensive exhibition it needs you, more than one item. you need to get as many yeah. you can to see it so musee-dorsey.fr or for the Paris side or metmuseum.org for the New York side mm-hmm. of things and, and obviously I suppose some of these they might be fully available online but there will be aspects of them that will be available online if you're if you aren't traveling mm-hmm. this is very interesting in baltimore mm-hmm. museum of art from april of this year through until july of this year the culture mm. hip-hop and contemporary art in the 21st century this is yeah. really, this is kind of a it's more than just visual arts that we're talking about yeah it's it's so interesting and actually it is one of the ones that travels goes to saint louis as well um so Essentially, what they're doing is they're taking uh, hip hop, which most of us associate just with music, and showing you that it is uh, essentially an artistic cultural movement as well as a very important social and political movement. So they're bringing together, you know, photographs of Run DMC and Cardi B and then Mm. putting Jean-Michel Basquiat and these artists, some living, some dead, in the middle of that, as well as, you know, the T-shirts that might have been sold at a Tupac concert and all of these different things and kind of showing you that we have to um, stop being so restrictive when we think about what an exhibition should be. We have to be, you know, careful of not privileging, privileging one culture over another, um, say in America, for example, um, and that we have to, you know, allow things that seem popular to be also understood as culturally significant. Oh, excuse me. <coughs> we you might give a, a just a brief because I know we're going to talk in more detail about um, the Vermeer ah, yes. at the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam later when because it's opening in February on February the tenth. Uh, what makes this particular exhibition special? Because we will talk about it in more detail. Yes, so I'm going to go over and month. see yes. it and bring a few groups over and then I'll come back on to talk Tell about it. Tell us all about it. Uh, yeah. But yeah, so essentially um, Vermeer is credited these days with about 35 paintings. Now, some people will bring that up to 37, which means a very small oeuvre for an artist. Yeah. They're going to have 28, including some uh, from the Frick who've never been loaned before. Um, they're going to be in 10 rooms, roughly chronologically, in terms of uh, how they're arranged and it's a rare opportunity mm. to see Vermeer in a very pure way without other artists sort of in competing with yeah. him but it's probably the biggest blockbuster I think of the year so that, the that's one of the big ones and yeah. that's why you'll be talking about it in exactly. more detail too yes. I'll, I'll let you give one other honourable mention um it, that that one that you might pick out. Yes, so there's loads and loads and loads, but actually there's one that's coming up in Bergamo in Italy, which is uh, Cecco uh, del Caravaggio, and he was uh, the title of the exhibition is Model Student. He was a yeah. model and a student with Caravaggio, and he's very very uh, little known. And now all of a sudden they're bringing together all of these works attributed to him to this one place, and it's almost like the perfect art history essay where you get. To 
to really see and understand the whole right. of what we know about one artist yeah, in yeah, one place. Any, any one of what you've just described to me sounds like a well worth a visit. Jess, thanks for coming in to us and sharing Thank your thoughts you. as always. Jess Fahey there. Now, last night I was telling you about um, the Dervish uh, concert at Tradfest Temple Bar. Uh, Thursday of next week, they're playing at the National Stadium. Uh, all about the Great Irish Songbook, their album. I also reminded you of our own event uh, on the Monday, the January the 23rd, Temple TradFestTempleBar.com if you wanted to do that. I promised you that I'd come back and play a little bit of Dervish with Brendan Gleeson, the man of the moment, because I didn't play it for you last night. So here is a little bit of Brendan Gleeson and the Rocky Road to Dublin. <laughs> Was in the merry month of June From me home I started Left the girls a tune Sad and broken hearted Saluted father dear Kissed me darling mother Drank a pint of beer Me tears and grief to smother Then off to reap the corn Labour I was born I cut a stout like corn To banish coast and cobble And brand new pair of brogues Rattled o'er the bogs And frightened all the dogs On the rocky road to double there he is, Brendan Gleeson with the Rocky Road to Dublin performing alongside Dervish uh, from the album The Great Irish Songbook and that album will feature as part of the Dervish gig next Thursday, January the 26th as part of Tradfest Temple Bar but Dervish will also be with us on next Monday, January the 23rd at the Printworks in Dublin we're doing a, a two-hour show first hour of it will be broadcast live on Monday night we'll put the second hour of it out on Wednesday evening and if you want to get tickets for that particular event we have a limited number Price at just five euro. So go to the website to find out more. Tradfesttemplebar.com. Kiara Conway is an award-winning singer and visual artist. She creates experiential performances of performance works that utilize traditional songs, Irish and international, contemporary vocal compositions and visual arts to explore all of these themes. In 2021, Kiara released Queen, an album of traditional song and laments that explore the sensibility of the cry or the queen. Queen has just completed a national tour, but Kiara will be at the head school in Doolin with her workshop called Queen. Sounding Loss Lament where she will explore Queen a traditional Irish and global practice of lamenting the dead using sound recitation and song delighted to have Cara join us this evening from our, our Galway studio Cara I remember we, we spoke to you last year about the album uh, in fact but this time it's not just about performance you're teaching participants all about the Queen uh, obviously that word in Irish uh, means literally a uh, Queen is, is crying is is the Queen always a lament for the person, or is there any ever any sense of celebration around the persons of the uh, person's life, or is this all about the grief expressing that aspect of losing somebody? Hi, Sean. Lovely to speak with you again this evening. Um, good question. No, one of the things that I love about lament is, uh, in particular Irish lament, is that it was used as a form to express a number of things, including um, eulogising the deceased, praising them. There was a form of celebration, but mm. one of the things that I'm fascinated about and that I'll be teaching the participants is lament as a form of protest. Um, I don't know if many of your listeners will be aware, but Angela, uh, Dr. Angela de Berka has written extensively about this um, in her essay, More in Anger Than in Sorrow, 
But traditionally, Irish lament was used as a way of um, calling out, calling out atrocities and abuses that have might have happened in a community. And the Bian Quina, um, her role um, as the main lamenter or the main uh, keener was in a sense untouchable in her role. And she would use this platform and like, and she would also confuse the listeners. So on one hand, she might be praising the deceased, but in the next verse, she would then be calling out um, a member of the community and she would flip from the praise to the critique in such a way as that sometimes the listener might be even thinking, did I even hear that? Um, so it was, it was quite a clever, a clever way yeah. of, um, of engaging the community and, and fascinating really when you, when you think of an art form or a song form such as Lament being used in so many different ways. And I guess, I, su- I suppose, if particularly if the person who has been lamented was felt strongly about the particular issue that's been sung about, exactly. it was a way of praising the person who died via attacking somebody else. Yes. But, but you mentioned there the ban queena. Mm-hmm. Is it always a ban? Is it always Manaw yes, who yes. are involved in queening? Yes, and, and across the globe, this, this has been the case. So um, I'll be exploring with participants in the workshop. We'll be looking at the traditional role of the Ban Quina, um, that it was uh, mostly women. Um, in Ireland, definitely, it was women who held this role. And we'll be looking at women as authors of lament. Uh, again, not many people are aware that it was primarily women that composed these lament poems. They weren't so much songs in those days. Uh, they were recitations, they were long poems, and they were recited. And there were voices. Um, you know, vocables and vocalizations mm. along with these poems, these long poems. But it's primarily women authors that compose these pieces of work. Um, which, which I suppose so, the fact that they were poems maybe gives a sense of why we get the sound of the Queen rather than the song of the Queen. That, that yes. there is that sense of elongation of vowels and maybe a kind of a kind of highly stylized delivery of a poem. Yeah. You're right. And and that's where more the ohones come in. Like some people might ask, what does ohone mean? But it's more like the vocable. It's yes. the ohone and the ohone. And it's like nearly that would turn into a wail or, or uh, a greeting. Now, you, you're you're not only looking at the Irish tradition here, you're looking at the, the traditions of other uh, parts of the globe as well. Mm-hmm. How, how, how wide a practice is it around the globe? Obviously, people die everywhere and are grie- <laughs> grieved over everywhere. But this specific type of queen or lament, how common is that? I, I would say, Sean, that it, it exists in every every country around the world. I, I think that it, it, I think in every culture where there has been death and grieving, there has been a form of lament. Personally, I'm not an expert on the subject, yeah. but I would believe that. And the songs that I'll be teaching in the workshop will be uh, Georgian and Irish. Um, I'll be teaching Iavanana. An Iavanana is a healing song, but it's also a lament. And it's one that I learned in Tbilisi in Georgia. Um, and it's a beautiful melancholic cry to the Iavanana, who's the mother goddess. And it's a cry uh, for your child not to be taken taken away when they're ill, not to be taken away in death. And I'll be teaching on Queen as well, which is one of Ireland's oldest laments. Mm. Well, let's let's have a listen to that, uh, even Anna, uh, uh, this, this type of uh, Georgian lament, because it's an absolutely beautiful recording that you sent to us. The, the title here is Viriditas. Does that have a translation? Yes, Viriditas is a, a term coined by the um, abbess Hildegard von Bingham. Um, and the Viriditas song cycle uh, is a song cycle that I created for Galway um, University Hospitals and Galway 2020 and 
Sielta Arts in 2020. So it was a song cycle that celebrated the healing powers of plants. It also looked at the effects of stress on the body. And I went to Tbilisi in Georgia on a research trip to gather some healing songs. And I had the great privilege of um, living with Ensemble Yelowni, one of Georgia's most famous ensembles. And I spent um, a number of weeks with them learning these beautiful, beautiful songs, including Ivanana. And and is it yourself performing here or is it some of It is, it's myself, yes. Yeah. Both on the on the drone and on the main vocals. All right, well let's have a listen to a little bit then of that Georgian lament. <laughs> Yavanana, the title of that Georgian lament performed for us there by Chiara Conway, who's speaking to me this evening ahead of her appearance at the uh, Doolan Hedge School, the Hedge School Festival, the Hedge School Festival in Doolan in County Clare. Really struck Chiara listening to that uh, particular piece of music. Uh, it, it's the harmonies that are within it, because when I think of a, an Irish lament or when I think of Queenie in that respect, I kind of think of a of a unison sound or or maybe perhaps that a hone sound, maybe overlapping sounds, but I don't get a sense of the sort of harmonies that we hear in that piece. Mm, I know what you mean. I suppose in the Irish tradition, we wouldn't have had the polyphony kind of tradition that they would have in Georgia. But I suppose very, very old forms of lament, of lament would have had a main keener in, in nearly the centre of a circle and then younger uh, keeners or who would have surrounded her and they would have repeated what she had said. And in a sense, that wouldn't it would have been harmonic, but you would have mm. had different layers. And I suppose the way we perform Quinta um, now uh, in a contemporary sense, you usually hear one voice singing it in a cappella sense. So we're missing that multi-layered voice that you would have had. You would have had traditionally. And I guess it probably is an um, um, it's an academic question in some ways. But do you think that that type of harmonising that we hear in that Eastern European tradition that is so evident in the piece that we just heard, do you think that that may have existed in Ireland, or is it possible to know so. that? Yeah, I, I think it's impossible to know, but my sense is no. But I, I, I stand corrected. I might go off now and research that to find out. <laughs> and, you know, the, the idea you're, you're speaking about, you were saying earlier on about the idea of um, the lament not just being about the grieving for somebody, but that it was a way of making so, a, a, some kind of social statement mm-hmm. as well or making a, some kind of social commentary, which is precisely what, what you did with your own Aquina at at one point along the way regarding direct provision. With the Making Visible project? Yes. Yes, in uh, 2013 I was commissioned to work with a group of asylum seekers, a group of women, um, and I worked with them for two years and we decided as a group, well they, they led they led the project, that they wanted to express the grief that they were experiencing living in direct provision, but also, you know, looking at the grief of having left their homes and then looking at the grief that they were experiencing now not having been able to engage with education or work. This was in a time when they had less rights and when not as many people knew about the direct provision system. So we decided to create a series of public lamentations. Um, and as part of those public lamentations, testimonies of the women were read out by actors and the women themselves performed a series of laments, um, laments from their own countries and Irish Shannos laments that they learnt. Um, and they were quite, quite powerful and they were performed um, nationally all over the country and also in the Irish Museum of Modern Art. And Noreen Nirian joined us for those performances. 
Um, so I'm really interested in the use of traditional lament to speak to or address a current issue. Mm. Um, so it was very, very effective in that project. And also that we, uh, we used that kind of drawing upon the role of the band Queena to call out. So the beginning of that performance was my calling out to the community that this is happening in your community and you too have a responsibility now yeah. that you know if you didn't know beforehand. Um, and I found that so, so, so um, effective and powerful in terms of how performance and the political themes can come together and song in a multidisciplinary way um, to, to move audiences and inspire them um, in, in a variety of capacities. Yeah, it, it strikes me too that when you think about it, we often use the phrase that something is lamentable, meaning, mm-hmm. that, meaning that it's a terrible situation or yes. a bad situation that should be called out. So I'm, I'm wondering if there are links to the use of the word in that particular respect. Also, also, as part of your um, uh, workshops, I think, or, and the performance element of the workshop, at any rate, you'd be accompanied by Kevin Murphy on cello. How unusual is it to have an instrument in the midst of all the queening? So uh, th- th- that's two things that are happening, Sean. So mm. on Saturday the 28th, myself and Kevin will perform at night time um, as part of the performances in the barn in, in the Hedge School. And then in the morning, it'll just be myself for the workshop. All right. That, uh, that'll be facilitating the workshop. So the, that, the the cello was there just to, to help That's you along it. Myself, with, with, with yeah, the Yeah, myself and Kevin Murphy would be performing a, a double header set. And just one other project that I know you're a couple of projects that you're involved with in the next few months, performances in Belfast and Dublin. Um, just maybe tell me about what this is the glacial woodland in McCroom and County Cork that you're talking about. Yeah, Another issue a, that you're calling out, I'm guessing. Yes, yes. It seems to be a thread through my practice at the moment. But I was invited by Mary Witcherly uh, to work with her on a project responding to the, the Guira. Um, it's an, an alluvial forest um, that was flooded um, in order to um, for to, to, for the by, by the ESB the Hydra sorry no I have to to, to, to read yes you're to looking for your note okay <laughs> <laughs> sorry because uh, we were working on this last year and then the, the project uh, came to a standstill during the pandemic but we started working on it again and it's due to be performed on March 30th in Dan, in Dan Slimerick so it's myself Mary, Mary Witcherly and the wonderful composer Jürgen Simpson um, and we've all been working together with right. two contemporary dancers to create a multidisciplinary piece responding to the to the Guira. Right, well, okay, that's that's a further project. But in the meantime, let me remind people of where they can find out more about your your Queena project and your Queena workshops. Thanks so much for being with us this evening, Chiara. Thank you, Sean. And that's Chiara Conway. Chiara will be at the Hedge School in Doolan Saturday the 28th and you can find out full details of the workshops and indeed the performances that she mentioned to us there on hedge-school Dot IE. And that is our lot for this Wednesday evening. Leah Murphy and Amandine Passo-Devine were the researchers. Michelle Gibson was the broadcast coordinator. Tommy O'Sullivan was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. Tomorrow night, uh, author of American Psycho, Brett Easton Ellis will be with us to talk about his new album, The, the Shards. And uh, that, uh, along with Babylon, Let the Wrong One In and Bank of Dave are the movies up for review. That's tomorrow night. In the meantime, I leave you with Fake No Brain On, who will be with you after the news.